You are now listening to the Minority Trailblazer podcast. Let the story begin. One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 One time for the lovers, two times for the ladies, three times for the brothers, four times for the babies. Do you love her? 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 Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. Brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin, love a brown. She my brown skin, love a brown skin. Hold me down. Yeah. Welcome to the Minority Trailblazer Podcast, and I'm your host Greg Ehill, the Culture Change Agent. On this show, we interview young, successful minorities in a variety of fields to educate, empower, and inspire our current and future generation. Yep, that's correct. All right, cool. So without further ado, I would like to introduce Chris Colbert to the Minority Troublemaker Podcast, man. Welcome to the show. Thank you, man. This, has been, <laughs> this is going to be a good one. I'm, I'm excited. I'm ready to go. Uh, I appreciate that intro. Uh, man, I got to get you on that voicemail. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's jump right into it, man. Let's start the show off with a quote or a mantra that you live by and then share a story about how you apply that quote or mantra to your everyday life. So, you know, I'm going to mess it up because I'm, I'm horrible at remembering the exact words of things. Uh, <laughs> but the gist is, uh, the great uh, Maya Angelou, you know, people don't remember what you've done for them. They will remember how you made them feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I try to, to live my life that way. It's all about, you know, how can I impact people's life and not necessarily do things for them, but to make them feel like they're empowered to do something themselves or to feel like they have something within them. Um, and so, you know, we do the same thing when it comes to our programming side of things. So I like to say that we operate with, uh, creating content that reaches you emotionally. It reaches you in a way that, you know, makes you feel like you are part of the content. You are a fly on the wall or you're actually in the room and something's happening. And so, you know, I very much try to apply that in my personal life, but also in my business life. You know, how can we make people feel like we touched them emotionally and, and, you know, made them realize who they can be or who they already are. Mm, so what's the last experience that you have actualized that like specific? Um, well, specific, honestly, it's this new project we're working on right now. Um, mm-hmm. It's called Say Their Name, all around unarmed black people being killed by police and in stand your ground situations. And I literally went around the country on like a three week road trip where I sat in and actually we started this back in 2019. Um, but I recently here in June, July of 2020, uh, went out and, and did this road trip. And in all those experiences, sitting in these people's living rooms and having them tell these personal experiences, to get them to tell those personal experiences, you first have to give up yourself emotionally and let them understand where you're coming from. And so, you know, I think that's where I was, I've been able to apply that in something that we're currently working on, where I can make people feel comfortable to talk about things that they haven't said to other media um, or haven't said to even their own family. We literally have some of those where people are like, hey, I haven't even told my own family this, but this is what I experienced or this this is what I want to be able to express because you've made me feel comfortable on this platform um, that I, I can say these things. And to do that, you yourself have to be uh, kind of emotionally vulnerable. And so, yeah, Maya Angelou, she's uh, she has many powerful quotes, many powerful messages. And that's one I definitely take to heart. 
Mm, I love that, man. So uh, let's let's start off like this before we get to kind of do it a, a deep dive into to who you are and then give context to, hey, what your company does, but also be your current project and the significance of it in the culture. Um, can you give us a one word to describe last week and and and, sh- and share with the audience why you des- why you chose to describe that word? One word to describe last week. Um, it was forgetting the the right term to kind of use for this, but it was. Um, and I might change this word in a second, but inspiring. Um, uh, and I mean that more in the sense of inspiring in terms of what we're already doing. Conviction. There, there we go. That's the better yeah, word. Yeah. Okay. I gotcha. <laughs> the word for last week was the word for last week was conviction uh-huh. um, because we've been working on some projects. You know, we have a, a whole slate of, of different things that we work on, and the feedback that I've been getting just from everyday people, whether it be on social media, whether it be friends, what have you, and people just tell me how much it touches them, how much it's inspired them, how much it's taught them, um, even just some of the things that we're in development on, how much you know this can really help to change the world, change culture. Um, I think sometimes as, as business people, as hosts of shows, whatever your, your job may be, I think we get so locked into the here and now of what we're doing and the process of what we're doing that we sometimes can lose sight of the impact that it's having on people. Um, and so I think it was great to be able to hear from just everyday people. And it just came up a lot last week with people just letting me know what it is that we, what it is that we do means for them. And also that goes on the same side of our own employees. Um, I've had some conversations with them recently and them basically saying like, I really love what I'm working on. I feel like this is bigger than just a job or a paycheck. So, um, yeah, I'd say conviction is the word to describe last week. Mm. So it, it's a perfect segue into, Sharing with the audience a bit about who you are, your background, and kind of what you do. And this is your plat. This is this is your platform, your soapbox. Will take as long as you want or as little as you want. But um, just just educate the audience on who you who you are, where you're from, and all that good stuff. Sure. Yeah. So um, you know, Chris Colbert. I originally from the uh, suburbs of Baltimore, but I you know quickly after I realized that my MBA dreams weren't going to yeah. to be what carried as, me through as, life. As us all, how tall are you? <laughs> <laughs> Six one, exactly. Okay. I'm a, I'm a point guard in the NBA. You know, I'm tall in real life, but you know, in <laughs> basketball, I'm super short. Uh, my handles aren't aren't good enough to be NBA potential. So, um, no, I, I realized that that wasn't going to be you know the future uh, for myself, and and I quickly decided that you know television, the media industry, is where I wanted to go. And so I went to Seton Hall University, where I studied those things, and was able to get an internship in New York City with a, a smaller company at the time, Sirius Radio. Wow, and, what um, was this? I, this was uh, 2006. Uh, so Sirius, I think, was founded around 2003, 2004. Wow. So I legitimately, yeah, like kind of ground floor with them because they came to Seton Hall University and and basically were saying, hey, we need interns, mm-hmm. and only five of us showed up. And all five of us got internships. Like, that's <laughs> At Sirius XM? Wow. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, it shows you how quickly that company has grown. Like, kudos to them on that. Um, and yeah, I want to be on the hip hop station. Like I thought I wanted to do, you know, uh, uh, like the breakfast club kind of thing and, you know, program music stations. And I quickly, when I got that internship or when I was applying for that internship, there were no more, uh, availabilities in the hip hop R and B stations. And they said, well, you know, we have the openings in comedy. Oh, well, that sounds interesting. I've never, you know, heard comedy on the radio, but I did every night watch Comic View. I, you know, knew the Def Comedy Jam stuff. And uh, so I just took the chance in doing that. And I ended up loving it. I 
my second semester of my internship, they could have let me switch over to, you know, going over to uh, music. And they said, I said, no, I'm loving this comedy stuff so much. I'm going to stay here. And by making that decision, that probably created the trajectory for my life um, or my career in terms of, of what I was able to accomplish there. Because that second semester, my bosses basically said, you already know all the basics. You know how to load comedy. You know how to do all these other things. Um, and so we want you to help us put together a new station. Uh, my boss at the time, uh, I'm going to use his words. He said, you know, I have this idea for a station, but I don't want it to be uh, the white Irish guy's take on what urban comedy would be. So basically, can you create a station that's catering to black Latino audiences? Um, and so I helped him create it and really based off the, the knowledge I had from watching Comic View, watching Deaf Comedy Jam, you know, mm -hmm. created a, a whole new station. Obviously, I got some help. It wasn't just me, you know, people helping with imaging, all that. And the reason I bring that up is that because of creating that, four months after I got done creating that, I was now a senior in college. Um, I wasn't actually allowed to do more than two semesters at, at Sirius. It just was a policy that, that was there. Um, because of that, I got a phone call um, around January of 2007 um, from my former boss saying, Jamie Foxx recently was here and decided he wants to create his own urban comedy channel. It's basically this channel that you already created. Mm -hmm. Would you like to come back and help create that? And so my radio career started by coming back to Sirius, um, Sirius Satellite Radio at the time and creating this uh, comedy station for Jamie Foxx called The Foxhole. Mm -hmm. I, I, I kind of remember that. It was it was big for a minute there. Yeah, it was because um, you know, that was like had, before Kevin Hart did the LOL Network and stuff like that. He was really one of the first ones to, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, and Kevin was a guest on there sometimes, and he destroyed man. Oh, some of his freestyles and uh, just cutting it up with people like Johnny Mac and Speedy, and yeah, we had we had some good ones. Earthquake used to have a show there. Uh, Cheryl Underwood. So mm -hmm. that's where I started was with that station, and I stayed at SiriusXM for eleven years just to kind of sum up my time there, um, and eventually worked my way up from being an intern to a production coordinator, producer, all the way then to a, a director of urban talk and comedy, which is the PC way of saying I ran black and brown. Uh, talk programming for Sirius XM. Um, and while I was there in that trajectory, I wasn't only just looking at what was happening at Sirius, I was looking across the media landscape and realizing that there weren't enough opportunities being given to particularly black people, but yep. people of color. Um, and if there were opportunities being given to them, they weren't necessarily being given the same kinds of resources in terms of talent booking mm -hmm. or uh, the level of producing, uh, uh, press, marketing. And, you know, I just realized that working for other companies, I may not necessarily be able to do that in the way that I think is, is the way to go about it. And so I started actually formulating my idea of creating my own company. And so in 2005, I founded DCP Entertainment, my own media production company. But I didn't actually go all in at that point. I was still at Sirius, just kind of figuring out how can I get the money to really get this thing off the ground. And as I was going through that process, um, in 2017, uh, I was reached out to by a podcast company called Cadence 13, who uh, was looking to start a new audio documentary division. They wanted to start a few other divisions, but they had heard that I had been producing some new audio documentary content for Sirius XM. I was producing uh, a documentary on Red Fox. I did one on Jamie Foxx's album at the time. Uh, I did one on George Carlin, because I actually ran a George Carlin station for a while. And, and so these are heard bona fide that. legends in in communication. Like I think com comedians are like that's you seeing these names out, man. It's like wow, wow. Okay, continue, man. I'm just blown oh. away. It's crazy. 
George Carlin, bro. Oh, no, Red but, Fox. <sighs> yeah, man. And it's 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 interesting having done those stations too. I got an education even doing those things. Like I, I thought I knew so much about them, and then getting to work with some of their family members and wow. uh, managers and things like that. Yeah, you really get to understand. Like George Carlin was a beast. Uh, you know, Red Fox himself was also be someone who didn't even get his due until he was like in the 60s or 70s. Um, but anyway, you know, doing those projects gave me exposure um, or, or exposed these other companies to, oh, this guy is more than what he's currently doing. And so they brought me in and hired me away from Sirius um, to start running their audio documentary department. And my stipulation with going there was I'm not looking to just move to another company. My ultimate goal at this point is to own my own company because I have a way that I want to go about media. And so I just was upfront with them that if I come here, I'm going to be working on my company on the side at the and uh, uh, I struck out and uh, struck out in terms of going out on my own uh, because at that same time I had people like uh, Joy Reid that that we were talking with and, and trying to help her with her podcast. Um, I had some other kind of celebrity type people who were reaching out saying, "Hey, I heard you left SiriusXM. Now we can really work together." And so that just gave me that extra push that, "Hey, you have the network, you have the skills." Um, you need to go out on your own and start really forging your own path and stop, you know, putting money into the pockets of all these other companies. Let's do it for yourself and do it with the responsibility that you think uh, you need to impart when it comes to these communities you're trying to reach. So that was kind of my trajectory for where I am now with DCP Entertainment, where we produce um, and distribute podcasts and video production content, all with this umbrella of what we call underrepresented communities and conversations. So people of color, women, the LGBTQ plus community, people with disability, talking on things like mental health. And uh, so, yeah, that's where we're coming from things. And we do it with no filter. We're not going to censor our our hosts. We want to make sure that they're reaching the audiences that they want to reach. And we help them to figure out the best ways to do that. Mm, man, that's that's huge, man. So one, where did you get the capital to, to it is all bootstrap to, to start on on this journey with it? So we actually went out to investors. We, um, you know, I, I luckily because of um, the network that I was able to get at Sirius, but also because of uh, my mother also was a, an entrepreneur. She was um, a IT consultant in, in the computer field. And some of her connections uh, in business, some of my connections that I got at Sirius allowed us to be able to go out to investors. So we did actually do like a a seed, uh, a seed round of funding to get the company off the ground because I really want to jump right out with some big names. And, and uh, to be able to do that, you need to have some capital to be able to get the kind of resources to support them. Hmm. So let's, let's take the interview like this. Uh, the first part, we're going to just talk just about the auspice of a media company and some of the, some of the underlings of creating content and what it looks like. And cause you have a, a plethora of experience at the highest level, CXXM, and really don't get no higher as far as radio and developing content. And then the second part, I really want to speak specifically into um, the new series that you're developing and kind of uh, look about the release date and, and the impact and the, uh, the inspiration behind that. I mean, we know what the inspiration is, but um to why yours will be different because there's a lot of content you're creating out there on that. So hitting that. And then lastly, I just want to talk about the future of the media and the content space. Are you cool with that? Oh, it sounds great. So let's, let's jump right into, cause I mean, media, I mean, this has always been my space. I, I jumped into podcasting in 2013. Um, one of the first, like in the space of, 
um, educate social community type based and um, primarily people I mean that's when before black people even knew what a podcast was they weren't really clicking on it they, they like it was just a, a, a silo small community and you say hey <laughs> listen to my podcast they're like so where is it at I'm like bro it's the big purple icon mm-hmm. on the iPhone or it's this and they're like bro I don't I don't know what it is and we were able to kind of come in into this space and to see what you've done from a 11 year perspective, man. So just if you could, and this is a, this is going to be a lot of ground to cover. Um, but 11 years at, 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 at Sirius XM, man, um, a lot of, a lot of people come into these space and people want to skip over a lot of stuff and then go to creating their own content, which is cool. But tell us kind of some of the things that you learned that's been most beneficial in your development as, as a leader, as a content creator, as a man, Getting those first eleven years under your belt, working at uh, from the ground level, uh, working at SiriusXM. Yeah, I, I, honestly, it was very valuable. Like I, I know for some people, they have to just go right out and create their own business. For me, it was really important to learn how to do radio, and sometimes that means making those mistakes. And and it's nice to make those mistakes on someone else's dime. Yeah, um, trust me, <laughs> trust me, <laughs> trust me. Um, honestly, I learned how to be a good manager. I think, you know, that was probably one of the best things I learned there because I had such great managers there myself. Um, and, and I think, you know, the managers that were great for me may not have been great for everybody else, but they were good for my personality. They understood how to give me the ball and then get out of the way. Um, they tell me what, these are your parameters and you know, this is your goal and now go meet that. And so, I learned how to not overmanage your team um, and, you know, give them the freedom while also giving them the mission. And so, you know, when I was running Jamie Foxx's station, you know, I, yes, I still had to make sure that we're uh, accommodating his brand. We're making sure we're over, um, you know, we're checking them to make sure we're not doing anything that's going to hurt him. But at the same time, it was, all right, Chris, you know what you're doing, you know, run with it. And uh, so it allowed me to make uh, connections with people um, at the White House at the time, the Obama administration, make connections with the United Negro College Fund. Um, and just all these connections that would serve me later in life because I had these managers that said, you know, you know what you're doing. Uh, you have these abilities and, you know, go run with them. So now as a boss, I'm able to take those lessons and apply them. On the flip side of actually, you know, you learn from the, the bad things too. I had some managers uh, that, that I did have over that tenure that were the exact opposite. They were awful bosses. They were micromanagers. They would call you at two, three in the morning and, and make an emergency out of something that wasn't an emergency. I actually once got fake fired in the middle of a show mm-hmm. uh, because that person was trying to get me fired and they wanted me to just walk out of the studio so they could then say, well, see, I told you you don't want to work with this person. Mm-hmm. So I learned how from that person, I learned how not to conduct business, how not to be a manager. And so I, I think, you know, without having had that experience at Sirius, I don't know if I'd necessarily be the effective manager that I am now in managing people. I might ma- be making some of those same mistakes um, that the bad manager that I had did um, because I may be trying to hold on to everything too much instead of empowering my team. Mm, mm, mm. Man, that's, that's, that's a lot to go there. So what is some, what is, is there some resources or some good books for those that deal with management now, or is it, is it more so just an experience thing? So from, from what you've learned? I'm more of an experienced guy. You know, I, I've been trying to do more of the, you know, self-help kind of books just because I think, you know, you should, you should get whatever information you can any, in any kind of format you can, but I'm more of a, you know, experienced kind of person. And also, Networking, I guess, would be the term for it, but I don't even use like using that term. I just like having conversations with people. And so talking mm-hmm. to these bosses, your your bosses, bosses in other departments, mm-hmm. bosses at other companies, 
and get to understand their pain points, get to understand uh, some of their philosophies and try to take those nuggets and apply it to what you're doing. And, and also, I think by having those conversations with people who are your senior um, or even maybe doing something in a different field, I think that's really advantageous because you learn to have an empathy you know, for what they're going through or what they need to satisfy their bosses. I think we get so stuck sometimes in what our, what we're doing and man, our, my boss gave me all this busy work, but you don't realize that that busy work got dumped on him. And yeah. so he's just trying to check <laughs> off some boxes. So, yeah. you know, he doesn't get fired. And if, cause if he gets fired, you might get fired. So, yeah. you know, you, you don't always think about these things unless you're having these conversations with people. And I don't necessarily think you always get that from a book. I don't want to discourage that. But for me, I get my most valuable lessons from life and, and talking to people who are living it every day. Mm, so, so walk us through what production, what's your, what's your creative process in creating content and creating shows? And then the second part, cause I, I break, I break rules. I, I ask three questions in one that just kind of just my, I just flow like that. <laughs> um, the second, the second part of it is work us through like, what does it look like creating content for, for, for some of the, the, the biggest names in industry? Um, and, and, and scolding that out. So one, the creative side of it. So what do you like? You, all right. You hear create content, create a show. That's one. What does that look like in your mind? Yeah. So for, for me, oh, I'm sorry. No, no, you're good. Sorry. Yeah. You broke up a little bit there. So I, I didn't hear you talking. Um, yeah. So for me creating content, uh, I primarily these days create more documentary type content. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kind of give you that perspective. Okay. So, uh, in the audio documentary field, my process is, you know, and really starts from pre-production, you know, just getting as much research as you can. And I think that goes with any kind of, uh, uh, media kind of format you're working in or honestly beyond media, but, uh, just basically knowing the story in and out. So if you're, you know, talking to someone about uh, a news story, well, okay, find all the news clips you can find, but also then go find the press conferences that came out around it. Go find, are there blogs about it where the people who didn't have a voice are, you know, are speaking. So you understand some of the behind the scenes. So, you know, the intelligent questions to ask when you're in the room. Um, and then when you get into the production piece of it, you know, making people feel comfortable, even when trying to book those guests, mm -hmm. my whole process is letting these people know that, Hey, I'm accessible whenever you need me. Any questions you want to ask, feel free to ask me. Um, letting them know if I've already interviewed other people, here's the contact information for those other people. So you can find out how they felt by the interview, find out the good and bad. And I'm always transparent with them. Maybe they didn't, this other person didn't like certain things. Find that out too, because I want you to be as comfortable when we sit down as possible. Um, so that's kind of my pre-production kind of phase into the production. It's having a conversation. I, I like to lead off every interview we do, getting to know that person, even if that's not going to you know, be in the episode, I want them to talk about their life experience. And then that allows me to share some of my life experiences at the same time so that now they kind of forget this microphone is here. Mm -hmm. They just feel like we're hanging out and, and, you know, they're making a new friend. So they're going to, you know, let them get to know them. So, uh, I think from a getting the story standpoint, that's how I go about things. And then when I get into production, uh, the post-production, where now we have all the interviews, we're just trying to put this into a cohesive story. Um, I like to basically shut off the world. Um, I'll do my CEO business until five, six, seven o'clock in the afternoon. And then I will sh shut off my phone um, or put on do not disturb. Uh, I will, you know, close out my email, my Slack, everything. And I will just sit with the story and, and basically weave it because I like to take my voice out as much as possible and let the story tell itself. And so I will be grabbing 
you know, two sentences or four paragraphs from this person's interview and then mix that with another person's interview and then mix that with a press conference. So really weaving it so you feel like you're in the story. And to do that, I have to shut out the world because my brain is thinking five, six, seven steps ahead of, okay, this is going to then go with this and then that'll flow into these topics. So that's kind of my process. You know, I really try to be as personable as possible leading up to and through the interviews. And then I shut out the world. I basically do the exact opposite. I kind of silo myself and really sit with everything that I have and then write out these, these stories. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of my process for creating. And then now let's go into, let's, let's take a step back. Let's go down memory lane. First year, no, nah, not first year. First year, really not intern years counting. You're working on Foxhole production. Are you working with Jamie Foxx? Um, and then also, too, what does it look like you're working on a project with another creative? Because, you know, creative, they have their own vision, their own energy behind it. And sometimes it can be conflict. Sometimes it can work well together. How do you mesh? Yeah, no, and it's a very great point you bring up. So, uh, yeah, early years working with Jamie Foxx, um, I'd say we worked together, but it was very, it was intermittent, you know, maybe two or three times a year I might see him. He's out in LA, I'm here in New York on the East Coast. Um, And so we didn't see each other very often, uh, but when we did, it very much is his show. You know, he's running things and I'm there to support that. And so I think you just have to go in with that mind state of, I am an extension of this person's voice. I'm an extension of this person's brand. So you don't think, you don't get, you don't have the luxury of thinking as yourself. You do, because you want to question things that are going on. You want to try to think, okay, if I'm the listener, but you ultimately have to uh, compliment this this person, especially if they're high profile like Jamie. So um, for Jamie Foxx, it actually was great and easy because he very much was a collaborator himself. And mm-hmm. so he wants your opinion. He wants to hear from you. And he's very respectful. I, I, I want to tell this story because it's probably one of the ones that I like to tell the most when people ask, you know, how is Jamie Foxx? What kind of guy is he? I think it was the maybe the second time we ever met. Uh, we were doing a, an interview for his new album. He's being interviewed by somebody else on a different station. Um, I think it was like a Heart and Soul channel. And he's being interviewed by... Um, Raheem Devon. Mm-hmm. And it is going really well. And in the commercial break, I'm sitting in the control room with, with Jamie's manager. I'm sitting with my manager. And Jamie comes in and, and says to all of us, he goes, man, this interview is going really well. Is there any way that we can get this on my station too? Mm-hmm. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that is a big deal, at least to me, because someone of that stature, an A-lister like, like Jamie Foxx, who at the time Oscar award winning, now Oscar and Grammy award winning, um, for him to ask he could have easily have just come in that room and said, this is what I want and you're going to do it. No, he said, is this possible? Can you, okay, that means a lot to me if you could. And so b- working with him was that kind of relationship. He's always respectful, always understands that there's a process that maybe he doesn't understand. So he's going to come to you and ask, can we get this uh, together? And so uh, that's the way that you kind of have to approach things. Um, you know, if you're the one uh, uh acting as the support for these people, mm-hmm. you're there to, to, you know, do what they need. And sometimes they're not going to be as nice as a Jamie is, <laughs> but that's the, that's the approach that I take with all the other people that we work with now too, is that the Torres, the Daniel Moody's, the Reverend Mark Thompson's that we work with, their shows are their shows. I'm going to give them advice for what I think works, but ultimately at the end of the day, if they want to do X, Y, and Z, and I say, I think it's better to do A and B. Well, X, Y, and Z is what we're going to do. As long as it's not a detriment to our company, it's not a detriment to their show, we're going to do what they want to do because this is this is their brand, this is their voice, and we're just here to help champion that. Mm. And uh, I think, you know, when you have issues is when ego gets involved. And you just have to take ego out of it and realize that you're an extension. 
Mm. So that's not a bad thing. Yeah, that's not a bad thing. So let's jump. Let's jump into uh, your company. So you have this idea that in 2005, right? Oh, uh, sorry. So yeah, 2015. I may have said 2005 before, but okay. 2015. I was I like, hold up, you was that was before. LLC. That was in like that was in college. I said, yo, I said, okay. I mean, <laughs> I I I, I could have made some good copy off that. You started division in 2005, and then 12 years sitting on this idea, and then blah, but now blah blah blah. Like I was like, okay, we can we can we can. But uh, okay, okay. <laughs> but um, well, it's, it's actually interesting to that point though. Like my mother was an entrepreneur; she had always pushed me to be an entrepreneur. My sister was an entrepreneur right out of college. I went the route of you know I'm going to go work for people, and, learn. and that's just kind of the funny thing. I thought that I'm just going to work for people all this time, but then after working for people, I realized no, I to have the real power, you need to have your own business. So mm-hmm. it was it was bubbling there in 2005. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, <laughs> so now it's bubbling, and now the lava the lava explodes and you're on your own what was the first day like like no don't talk business yet what was the first day like you on your own now like you wake up there ain't no balls ain't no like what what, what's up it was a breath of fresh air it was i get to make my own schedule i'm gonna work where i want to work it was the first time i'm technically kind of working from home um though i'd still like go in the studios from time to time but yeah i think i that day i think i went to the park and answered emails <laughs> there. you know i think i even took an instagram picture i'm like outdoor office uh, so yeah it, it was a it was a shift in mindset of i control well you know this future i control where we're going from here and I, it also means i control my work-life balance uh and so yeah that first day was definitely more of a a, a breath of relief mm-hmm. So now let's transition. So, how fast did you scale up as far as adding new shows? Um, like, so we're gonna go adding new shows, employees, and hiring because that's a whole that's a podcast in itself. But we don't like so. Let's start there. Those two things. How quick did you ramp up to get content out there? And then two, how how was what is your process for hiring the right people, whether it be contractors or employees? Uh, with your baby. Yeah, we we ramped up. It probably took us about six months or so before, you know, from when I went all in with the company um, to when we actually put out our first programming pieces. Um, some of our content is weekly episodes. Some of our content is more seasonal, more documentary type ask. And so that documentary seasonal type content takes some time for with pre-production and, and production and post-production. So yeah, it took us about six months, I'd say, to ramp up and get a show out there. I, in our first uh, year, we put out uh, three different series, mm-hmm. um, two of which were ours. Um, a third was one that we partnered with another company to do a documentary on Freaknik. Mm-hmm. Um, we partnered <laughs> with Mass Appeal, Nas's Entertainment Company, yeah. and uh, Endeavor Audio to put that together. And so, yeah, the, we we actually came out of the gate even faster than I thought because my whole goal was. You know, maybe the first year we'll get three shows and then we'll ramp up to maybe five, six, seven in the second year. But mm-hmm. once we got those first couple shows, uh, Torre being one of them, his network helped expand us a little bit um, because he's telling his people, hey, you know, you might want to work with this guy. He's he, he knows what he's doing. You know, I'm having a good experience. Um, he had some other ideas of shows that he wanted to do. So we opened it up into doing some other shows with him, like Democracy-ish, which introduced us to Danielle Moody, who she then had another show she wanted to do, like Woke AF. So by the end of our first year, uh, like I said, I think we had about three 
uh, shows, but we were ramping up at that point to five. <clears throat> and now we're at about, you know, seven shows that we've put together over time, summer off season at the moment. But we we grew very quick. And uh, one of the questions you had asked, too, was how did you, you know, scale up your employees? A lot of that dealt with the shows that we we're working on. So uh, once we bring on a new show, we need uh, a producer who has time to be able to work on that. So we're constantly just evaluating how much time our uh, our host, I'm sorry, our producers are spending on each show because every show is different. Some shows are just editing out, you know, a few little pieces and adding music in. So that doesn't take a lot of time. Other shows, they're helping write the script. They're helping go back mm. and forth with talent bookers. So it's not just a one size fits all to say, you know, one producer works on three shows. No, some producers only work on one show and other producers work on three or four. So we're uh, constantly uh, scaling that and figuring out what works. Uh, but when it comes to freelancers, we very much utilize those, especially on the video side, um, on a project per project basis. And we do try our best to go with people that are two degrees or even three degrees of separation um, because we want to know do these people believe in the mission of what we're doing and not just them in an interview and saying, I believe in it. No, I want to talk to people who know them to say that, oh, no, these people have been looking for a project like this or they've worked on some other projects and I saw the passion that they had going into it. So, you know, ultimately we may be missing some of the best talent out there in terms of our staff, but we have some super talented people who are very invested in what we do. And I'd prefer that than, you know, having somebody who's uh, 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 a Peabody Award winner who doesn't necessarily have the same passion behind the kind of projects we're doing. Um, so yeah, we, we try our best to utilize um, the marketplace that's out there, but using our connections to find the right people who fit our culture. Mm, man, that's, that's powerful. So now what is your role now? All right. So you have, you got producers, you started off producing, you have producers, you have people that book talent, like all this stuff. Like what, what is your role within your company? And I think sometimes I miss asking that question to people like they, some of them are, are if they're in the weeds and they're in the mix and some of them are at a high level. And I'm like, hold up. So I got the whole podcast. Like, so what do you do now? Like, hold up. You <laughs> like, yo, you like, what, what, what do you do? <laughs> I'm somewhere, I'm somewhere in the transitional period, to be honest. Um, like you said, early on, definitely very much in the weeds. I, I, I'm a big believer in you have to set the tone for the, for your company. So I believe in doing all the jobs that your team's going to eventually do. Um, and I also think that's just good because you understand how much time goes into those things. So you're not asking for impossible tasks. Like I need this tomorrow. No, Chris, that takes a week. Mm -hmm. So, um, early on, very much in the weeds. Now I'm, I'm further stepping back into more of the bird's eye view, helping make sure that everybody's on the communications that they need to be on, making sure our press team knows what the, the content team is working on, our talent bookers uh, are getting the, um, the information that they need from the producers. So I'm very much more in kind of the bird's eye view and, and trying to get myself to that bird's eye view of managing all the pieces and making sure they work cohesively together. But uh, because of the current project we're working on with Say Their Name, one where I'm co-hosting with our chief content officer, that has made both of us be a little bit more in the weeds now of actually going out, doing interviews, um, writing scripts. And so right now I'm basically working two jobs mm -hmm. uh, where, you know, basically from like 8 a.m. till maybe 7 p.m. I'm working my CEO job where I'm that top line, you know, managing everybody. Uh, then at 7 p.m., 7 p.m. to like midnight or 7 p.m. to 1 a.m., that's when I'm a producer. Um, and so after this project comes out, I'll, I'll relieve myself of my producer duties a bit and go back to just being CEO and, and getting some more time to sleep. 
Mm. <laughs> so, so on that, so one one question is two questions. Then we're going to go to your your current projects. I'm excited. I really want to talk more about that. One, uh, how do do you how how is the contract set up? Not specifically numbers wise, but is it set up with the host? Do you book actually book and you pay the host to do certain content? Is it seasonal? Is it a lot of nuance to that? Um, and that's just the part because I mean, I we've dabbled in last year adding more shows but there's a i was like yo this is a, i had some meetings set up with some people that unfortunately didn't they fell through so i'm always trying to get context from from other creators at the highest level is it is it like what 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 is the win for the host yeah so we we're different from a lot of from the definitely different from the major companies because we don't have though we have investors we don't have the money to be giving people all this upfront money to do the show with us my model is we're different from all those companies because we also aren't going to censor you you know so hey you can come here and produce your podcast you're going to still own the name of your show um you know if we're doing video content then yes we need to kind of have conversations on who owns that because there's a lot of money that goes behind the video content but especially on the the podcast side of things, we're we're a partner. We're you know you're bringing your IP, you're bringing your own ideas, you're bringing a, a lot of times your own network to the table. We're bringing our producers, we're bringing the money to help produce this, the studios, all that. And so then we just decide, okay, you're bringing X, Y, and Z, we're bringing ABC. So that then uh, allows us to split the revenue, uh, you know, in any kind of way. So we do revenue shares with our um, our hosts. And it allows us not only the freedom to um, get some talent that we probably wouldn't be able to pay for out of pocket, um, but it also allows us the ability to both be very much invested in the promotion of that content. Yeah. So these people yeah. have yeah. You know, their own social media platforms. And so their their uh, windfall is tied into them promoting this content. Whereas if they're getting, you know, say a million dollars right out the gate, I'm sure they're still going to promote, but probably not in the same. Because you know celebrities, you know type of, I mean, this is it in the game. We 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 know the game, man. When you get the, once you get in the money, man, hey, you just better pray. Because, hey, they, hey yep. when, the, when the bread is there, like, yo, it, it, you know the game. Man, like it is what it is. <laughs> you get it, like you. Oh, you. Oh, you give a rap all the front money. Oh, they gonna blow that. Majority of them, they go. They gonna blow that. They don't care. Like it's a. It's a savage. You probably seen the great and the bad, which we're not going to cover. But it's a. It's a. It's a real industry out here. And you got if they have no skin in the game, it's life. If nobody has any skin in the game. You better just you better you better ask God because you don't know what's gonna happen. <laughs> you don't know what <laughs> you'll produce all that content and you won't get no shit, no post or no nothing. And you be like, bro, I see you on live. Yep. Like you just do it live. Like for real, you act like you ain't got a podcast. But when there's a yep. like so I, I I get it. I get it. So where did y'all revenue come from though? Uh so from advertising revenue, um also, especially now that we have um well, and we're also gearing up to do some some additional things in this space. But because we have video content, that allows opportunities for licensing. Uh, so the great thing about a lot of our content, uh, I won't say a lot because actually we now have shifted a little bit more into some political conversations these days, <laughs> given the world that we're living in. And yeah. that was just very necessary. It wasn't part of my original business model. But, hey, you know, we got we got to save America. Uh, but. 
uh, a lot of our content's evergreen. So it's stuff that two years, three years from now is valuable, especially our stuff around mental health. We can license that to school systems. We can license that to um, you know prison systems. Uh, so there's ways that we are monetizing on, and are in the future are looking at monetizing our content. So yeah, it's a little bit of ad revenue um, mixed with licensing and also some of these brand partnerships like we did with Freaknik where uh, we get brought in as a production house to help create content uh, with other people who may be distributing. Mm, man, that's 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 huge, man. And um, so now let's 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 go into um, the new project that you're working on. So tell us, say their name. So tell us more about that for our audience, what the project is, um, the reason why it's so important. And 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 just is just go go in deep on that project because I'm interested to hear. Yeah, so that's one where uh, myself, also our chief content officer, Adele Coleman, both of us actually had this idea years ago. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's just beautiful that we, you know, come together. We're working together at, here at DCP. And um, the project itself, Say Their Name, is all about unarmed black people who have been killed by police or in stand your ground states. Mm-hmm. And it works on a few different levels. The first being a memorialization of who these people are, who they were, um, you know. What was their aspirations? What were their hobbies? What was their life trajectory before it was snatched away? Mm-hmm. You know, what was their family like? What's that community like? I think that gets lost in these conversations. You know, we're right now living through another one and, and it's just, you know, again and again. And so, you know, with Jacob Blake is the latest one we're hearing. But um, unfortunately, probably a week from now or two weeks or next month, we're probably going to hear another one. And in all these cases, we jump from one name to the next and we never get to know that person. So I very much wanted to, and, and Adele, we very, very much wanted to make sure that we got the stories out about these people mm-hmm. and doing so through the words of their family, their loved ones, the people who knew them best, not the media who is just taking uh, the police narrative of who they were. No, we want to know from the people who raised them. So that's piece number one. Piece number two involved in this series is what is the the ongoing effects on these families, on these communities? Uh, what happens after the hashtag stop? What happens after the cameras go away? You know, these people, these families, some of them we've highlighted are have been fighting for 25 plus years. Mm. Some are have only been fighting for two years, but mm-hmm. they still have very much a battle. They're going to be fighting for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. You know, what is the financial burden on these families? Some of these families have sold their homes to take cases all the way to the Supreme Court. Um, some of these families uh, haven't been able to actually pursue justice because they were homeless or, you know, don't have the financial resources. Some of them have physical ailments that have come out of the anxiety that's caused around this. Some of them are re-victimized by the police themselves um, and intimidated by the police in smaller towns. And so we want to be able to highlight that and show that this is more than just the incident itself. There is so much more that goes behind this. And it, it also, though we're talking about uh, black people who are being killed. It's not just white people doing it. There are black officers. There are black politicians who are allowing this to go on by either sweeping it under the rug or giving good lip service and not actually following through. Um, and also sometimes people in the community are taking advantage. We're highlighting some stories where people had GoFundMes for for people's families and the families never saw any of that money. So you know we want to tell that full story that way, as we are then looking at what changes need to be made, we mm-hmm. truly understand all the nuances. So we're not just putting a Band-Aid on, on a very large wound. And so you're really not getting any healing. And so, you know, that's a kind of an education piece there. But then also, 
we unfortunately, as I said, we're going to continue to see these cases again and again. And we hope that this will will lead to it happening less or stopping altogether. But we're not naive. And so this also serves as a resource for families that may experience this later, because a lot of these families will talk about how they have their own coalitions of mothers or foundations to support other people who may go through this later. So now, you know, if you experience this later in life or, you know, a week from now, you now have the resource to say, all right, I heard in this episode, or one of your friends can say, I heard in this episode, you can reach out to this person. Here's a link to reach out to this person. Um, and then immediately for these families that we're highlighting, we're also doing a crowdfunding throughout mm-hmm. the entire series where 100% of the money that we raise, and the crowdfunding is actually already up, even though the season hasn't started. Um, our season starts October 12th, and we're going to do a crowdfunding from now all the way through uh, January 15, 2021, where 100% of those proceeds will go directly to the families mm-hmm. that we're highlighting in this series, mm-hmm. uh, in this current season. And in future seasons, we want to do the same thing for those families. Because I think it's important that we are telling these stories. They're, they're opening up their old wounds. They're bearing their souls to us. And we need to give them something tangible in return for that. Because again, some of these families are struggling. Some of these families are living in the same home where their loved one was killed. And we need to get them out of those situations. We need to get these people counseling. And a lot of these families can't afford that. And so, you know, I want to make sure that we are doing something that can tangibly do something in the short term while we work on these long-term goals. And outside of our crowdfunding, we're also having the family talk about how they, that you can donate directly to them as well. We don't, you know, yes, we're operating as a middleman a little bit uh, during the season, but we want to make sure that even after our season's done, people still know how to donate to them directly, how they can contribute to scholarship funds, how they can be part of foundations. Um, and so, you know, this is very much a, a, a big piece in terms of everything that we're trying to accomplish. Um, but I think it's just so necessary for where we find ourselves right now. Mm, man, how many how many episodes and how many families? <laughs> So this season's going to probably be either 14 or si- 14 or 16 episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is going to be highlighting seven to eight families stories. So each family, each story is going to have two episodes. That first episode comes out on Mondays and that's more about who was this person? Uh, what was their life trajectory? And then it you know, kind of ends on a little bit more of that sad note of, of the horrible tragedy that happens. And then that next episode that comes out um, later in the week is all about Okay, what was the fight for justice after that? Where are we now? Long-term effects. And what is that call to action for the audience and what they can do to support this family, support this community, and themselves fight for the opportunity for all people to have justice? Um, and so, you know, we kind of separate those two pieces on that. So every family gets gets two episodes. Um, October 12th through about mid-December is is the length of when this series will run, or at least this first season of the series. So you said that's six six families? Uh, sorry, seven families, seven to eight families. We, we've already interviewed seven families. The reason I say seven to eight is we're in conversations with one additional family that will give us eight. And how was, how was the experience, uh, and, and this talk, let's put me personal. Um, how was the experience traveling over the last couple of weeks specifically? And you, did you travel, was it this year? Yes. Yeah, so so um, during actually, COVID times. Yes, absolutely. So, so yeah, our so first two that. families, we, yeah, our first two families we interviewed actually were back in 2019, back in November. Um, the families of Robbie Tolan and Danny Ray Thomas in Houston. Uh, but outside of those, every other interview has been done during this pandemic. We, 
uh, went on the road uh, between June and July, just as cases were spiking back up in Florida. We we got to Jackson. I'm sorry. We got to Tallahassee, Florida, as cases were hitting like 9,500 new cases a day. Um, so that was kind of the backdrop of what was going on. And I say we. Uh, I went on the road and because, um, you know, we're, we have a lot of stuff going on. So our team was really working with a lot of our other hosts. I was going to go on my own to just record these interviews and my mother, uh, wanted to join me and wow. I, I very much wanted her to join me on this journey. Um, cause she, you know, as much as I fear for her safety when it comes to the pandemic, she is seeing what's happening to all these, these, you know, unarmed black people. And she wanted to be able to do something. And so she joined me on the road and we did a road trip together um, where we went to Tallahassee, to Cincinnati, to uh, DC, to Minneapolis. Y'all drove we all, all these places. Drove to oh, Minneapolis. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh my goodness. From DC and all these other, like, bro, like, so man, there was it a two camera, three camera shoot? Did you did you set up? Did you stage and set it up all yourself? Or did you ha- you hire local contractors? Um, yeah, I'll let this this siren go past real quick. Yeah, apologies there. Um, no, we did, did everything ourselves. Yeah. Okay. For real? Cool. Yeah, we did. Our, yeah, did everything ourselves. So this was an audio only documentary. So oh, that okay. made it a little bit Perfect. easier. Yeah, the Zoom and recorder. Uh, yeah, so we use um, yeah Zoom. I'm very much in in the Zoom recorders. The Zoom H6, the mm. Zoom F4 are yep. two of my favorites. And uh, yeah, we had that. We had our our microphones, our mic stands. Uh, came out there with a bunch of sanitary equipment. You know, have our masks, have our sanitizer, all that good stuff. And we literally sat in people's living rooms and had these conversations. And a lot of them, when we were talking to the immediate families, they were three hour long conversations. There was one family we talked to for seven hours. We started maybe around like you know six seven p.m. and ended at one two in the morning. And uh, it was just. Are you gonna keep all the content? So yeah, so there obviously not everything's going to make the episode themselves because we you know don't want to have a seven hour long episode. So there's some stuff that hits the cutting room floor, but we're probably gonna put out some additional bonus material of stuff that okay, it didn't fit in the the narrative, but we want to make sure you get this information. Uh, so there's very much additional content that we're gonna put out via social media, put out in our feed. Um, but the stories themselves, I want them to be a personal experience for the audience where they feel like they can truly, uh, I'll take truly out of it, that, that they can somewhat understand what these families are going through. We can't, we can't truly understand until we've been through it, but by listening to their words and having them speak and, and having, you know, say the mother's, uh, uh, the mother's conversation weave into the brother's conversation weave into the lawyer talking that experience is how we're presenting this uh this audio so that the audience can kind of lose themselves in the story and feel like they truly understand it so that's part of why we went audio only with this documentary to give it that radio theater kind of feel where you can kind of close your eyes and feel like you understand what what is happening and the other reason is because a lot of these families are very weary of the press. They've been, had their words taken out of context in the past. Yeah. They've been vilified by the media. And just my personal feeling was that it might be tough for some of these families to speak candidly if I had a camera in their face. It's a lot easier to forget about this microphone than having all these lights and cameras on you. And uh, it just made it allowed us to be a lot more nimble. Yeah, and I, I learned the hard way. I, I had to interview a guest this uh, this season, and it's unfortunately it's not going to air. Uh, great story. It was, but it was a touchy subject. And I mean, they probably were traumatized. We had the three camera shoot. I had all these lights, and um, there's certain things. Well, certain experiences that I haven't had that it just um, cause they. It was a great interview. Boom. But then I got a, a page long 
an email the next day about a lot of stuff that transpired within it. And like it was, and it was like, yo, we just recorded mm. a classic that was really touching that really can empower a lot of people. But the trauma associated with the content for some, I mean, could be a bit much. If you go in, like you say, you go in hot, coming in, you got the three cameras, you got multiple people in the room, you got this. And for me, it's like, hey, we getting the mix, all right? We getting it in, we get the, hey. And then it's like, hold up, man, like, you, you, it's a wound that is ripped open, but now it's like, you see the blood too. Yeah. And it's a different experience. So I completely agree. You come in with that. Then it's like, it remind me of sometimes a situation. Cause you know, when stuff get hot, the media's everywhere. Everybody's everywhere. Everybody's riding with you. Everybody's in the backseat. Everybody's vouching for you. Everybody's saying your name, but then they don't. Yeah. Yep. And that's the thing. Some of these families, yeah, they everybody was saying their name for three days and then another big incident happened. Everybody forgot about them. Some of these literally their own neighbors didn't even know about their their, you know, their loved one being killed. It's crazy to fathom, but it, it happens. And then the, the and that's thing- part of why I want to go around the country to tell these stories. I didn't want to just be like, oh, this is all New York or this is all Florida or this is all just one. No, this is happening everywhere. And obviously, you know, we've only done seven, eight different stories. We're missing a lot of them. But at least we can start somewhere, and that's the goal. The crazy thing about this all is, you think about it, <laughs> before the social media era, there, there, there's, there's, there's thousands and tens of thousands of stories that would never get told. They never hit anything. They would just kill, and you just didn't know. The police came back and said, hey, this will happen. Okay. Yeah. You cry, and you go to the funeral. You don't know. Or nobody says anything. You just don't see a person. Like that happens. And imagine the era before, because now the, all the bad stuff in social media, there's a lot of good to come from. You can galvanize behind certain individuals. Um, but before before this, there was there was nothing. It was word of mouth. You couldn't yeah. galvanize. So I, I imagine those families said families that have been fighting that they, they never got never they never got attached. Nobody say their name. So how do they unpack how do you unpack that? Because you said some somebody was on there for 25 years, they've been fighting. I would imagine 25 years ago, like there was no press behind it. There might have been like some on an article in a local paper, maybe. Yeah, that's the Archie Elliott story right there. That's our, our first episode of our series. Archie Elliott out of the DC area, um, PG County, Maryland. PG, and shout um out to PG. Yep. And he um he was handcuffed in the front of a police car. All he had on was jean shorts. They had already patted him down handcuffed, you know, hands behind his back, a seatbelt on him, uh, over his shoulders, over his lap. And the officers said that he pointed a gun at them inside their police car. And so they shot him, shot at him 22 times, hitting him 14 times. And yeah, how can someone with their hand cu- hands cuffed behind their back, but this is before video, this is before, you know, cell phone footage, you know, body cameras, all that. And so you take that and you try to juxtapose that with what happened to George Floyd, which is heinous and obviously inexcusable. But if you had video of the Archie Elliott, maybe that would have spurred the same kind of reaction that we get out of George Floyd, because there is no explanation for that. But to your point, it didn't make national news. It took even some years for it to even make real DC and PG County news. Um, And it's just, it's crazy to look at and to think that, hold up, we didn't pay attention to this. I, I was growing up in the Baltimore area at the time. And so I wasn't far from PG County. I don't remember that story. Mm-hmm. It was my, my aunt who reached out to me to let me know, Hey, you know, this, this story, you might want to, you might want to look into this. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, how did I miss this? But that's what we want to try to educate people on. They're, they're missing a lot of these you know, heinous incidences where these families have been fighting for justice. And in Archie Elliott's case, they they now have one last 
chance to be able to get this case reopened. And so we're going to hope, hopefully help them do that. Mm, man. Hmm. That's some heavy stuff, man. So, so, so question as we, as we let's shift towards the future, man, cause we we're, we're, we're running yeah. short. So what do you, what, what's the future of, of, uh, of DP entertainment, DCP entertainment rather? Like what's, what's the future? Where do you see it going in 2020? Um, the remainder of 2020 and 2021, like what is your thoughts on um, the direction you want to take it as far as the content you're developing um, or just in general? And I know, honestly, to be honest, how a difficult question probably because this world is, I mean, we don't know what's what right now, to be honest, on any front. So that's a, but yeah, take your stab at it. Yeah, it's ever changing. You're absolutely right. And ever changing literally minute by minute, day by day. Um, you know, we started out really trying not to do much political content. And now we find ourselves with three political shows. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> best laid plans. But no, I think I see us, you know, in the future, continuing to try to be socially responsible, providing a platform that allows, mm -hmm. uh, you know, communities to feel like they have a voice and, and not one that's watered down because of advertisers. You know, we were here to make money, but ultimately the advertisers should be looking to, you know, find shows like ours as opposed to us trying to cater ourselves to the advertisers themselves. So I very much see ourselves continuing that approach. Um, you know, championing these hosts that we already have, but, you know, looking outward towards other hosts. So right now, um, I kind of let off our conversation talking about the formation of the company was all around what I was seeing in the black community and people of color. But uh, though we have some other shows that have women focused programming or uh, have a host who's part of the LGBTQ plus community, I want to start expanding into those more. You know, I don't want to just be the BET of podcasting or the BET of digital media. I very much am rooted in my community and I want to make sure we always have something that services that. But I do want to broaden out into these other underrepresented communities, um, very much into the Latino space and, and uh, women LGBTQ plus. So I think that's our next evolution is starting to expand and and having representation for those communities, uh, even more so than we have now. And just watching technology and how it shifts. You know, if down the road, all of us have augmented reality or virtual reality in our homes, then, okay, how do we pivot our conversations to service that kind of format? My goal is to make sure that whatever we're doing, we're reaching people in the way that they're ingesting their media, getting their news, getting their um, their information and how they're they're connecting with the world. And so we need to always make sure that we are pivoting and making sure that we're reaching our audiences in the way that's easiest for them. So right now, you know, we do a lot of podcasts and we do a little bit of video, um, but we're going to be doing more video coming up. And then eventually maybe it's more, you know, augmented virtual reality. But who knows what the future holds? Mm -hmm. What's your biggest marketing channel to get the word out about your show? Like, how have you been able to get um, uh, ears, ears to your content? Social media has been the biggest one in the beginning. I think that's part of just also that that communal experience that podcasts give. Um, I, I think it's all about kind of feeling connected to your host. So we very much lean on our our host, their social media platform. We're building up our own DCP platform to take advantage of. So I'd say that's the primary way so far. Uh, though we do also utilize Google, YouTube as, as opportunities, as the biggest search engines in the world to try to reach people. And so I think that's where our strategy is going to get more emboldened, um, coming up here is to try to do more in that podcast. I'm sorry, in that Google, in that YouTube space. And now with Spotify really pushing hard in the podcast atmosphere right now, you know, really trying to take advantage maybe of some of their opportunities to reach audiences. Gotcha. Yeah. Are you looking to sell? Are you like, are you looking to sell? Get it. Uh, the, the content, what's your thoughts on that? If you can answer. 
Yeah, you know, it's funny. When I first started, it was very much nah, like this is a mission. I need to, you know, this is um, this is my baby. I, I want to hold on to it forever. And that still is very much uh, the the driving uh, my driving purpose. But I will say, when you see numbers like two hundred something million, you know, being thrown at companies, and you know, three hundred million thrown at companies, I'm like, all right, I'll entertain a few conversations because if those opportunities came to us and those companies laid out to us how they were going to continue the work that we have started. Um, and if, you know, even if that means keeping me on board or keeping certain people on board to make sure the mission stays on task and that we're helping these communities, then I'm very much open to it, but I'm not going to sell to a company that's going to then just try to bastardize the communities that I'm trying to reach and take advantage of those communities. Ultimately, after you sell, they can do whatever they want, but I'll do my due diligence to make sure uh, that that won't be the case. So basically to say I'm open to those possibilities. Um, but it would have to be a company that I think is going to continue the mission that we have. And would they necessarily buy the backlog of your content or would they kind of be like a kind of like in the active space where it's like a first look deal where they get they buy the opportunity to, for you to create more content? Or is it, I mean, because I, I guess that depends on the deal, right? I would say it depends on the deal and, and it could be easily be a mixture. It could easily be a situation where, yeah, they're buying that back catalog. Um, but at the same time, they may be saying, hey, I want you specifically, Chris, or I want, you know, your team that you currently have in addition to what we have, you know, working on two new projects a year or however many projects over a certain amount of time. So I think it could easily be a mix of the two. And I think it probably will depend on where we are as a company at that point. And, and uh, you know, I, I very much, you know, still love to produce content. My job really is to step away from producing content and be that bird's eye view that we talked about before. But eventually I, I am going to want to get back to my passion and, and what I'm obviously doing right now is say their name and, and, and creating content. So if we were to sell one day, and that's a, that's a big if, but, you know, if we were, I'd probably want to have some kind of carve out where, where I personally can still create. Yeah, like your own production house. Yeah, that's always, mm -hmm. I mean, because in the, the day as creatives, like, especially if you have a business mindset, of course, you get, you, you start, you, you start off on your own, you start hiring, you start scaling up, and then you get to a point where it sounds cool, but it's like, you're so far removed, it's like, bro, I, I want to be in the thick of things again. Like, I want to be able to create, like, hold up, I'm just, money's cool, but there's a cap. There's a cap on that, like, to some and it just that's a conversation for a, a whole nother a whole nother day, man. Um, question before we go to a rapid fire round. Uh, when it's all said and done, man, I hate to get morbid, but how do you want to be remembered? Um, <laughs> it goes back to the my angel clue. I, I want to I want to be remembered for how I made people feel, and um, I want to be remembered as somebody who wasn't about themselves. That they were really trying to elevate everybody else's voices and. You know, though I now I'm obviously, you know, doing interviews like this and putting my voice out there, it's with the mission to prop up every everybody else that works with us on camera and, and behind the scenes. Like we have incredible staff. So I want to be remembered as somebody who has championed important voices on and off screen. Mm. And how big, if you mind me ask, how big is your team? And I mean, around how many, con you work on 10 to 20, 30 contractors? Like how big is the scope of uh, what you're building right now? Just to give the audience uh, just an understanding. Yeah, staff wise, we have um, about five, six uh, full time employees. Um, we have a network of freelancers that depending per project depends on how many freelancers we're working with. But on a regular basis, we have 
uh, three freelancers who help us out with things like web design, graphic design, uh, our talent booking. Um, but then when we get into actual projects, our freelance capacity can go up to like 20 people who are supporting that video content, editing, shooting, DPing, all that good stuff. Uh, so yeah, we have a good in-house network, but we have a pretty extensive freelance network that only grows every every uh, every few weeks, every few months. Because as I get introduced to other uh, business owners, you know, much like yourself, you know, we then share our resources. Hey, you know, a good producer who's out of work. Cool. Let's let's bring them on this specific project or bring them on full time if we're, we're doing that kind of hiring at the time. Mm-hmm. And where's your video content at? Is it on your website as well or? Uh, it's on our website as well, uh, dcpofficial.com. Um, it's also on YouTube. We have our own YouTube channel, again, DCP Official. Um, so all of our content lives there, but we are, uh, this part I can't fully talk about, but we are in some negotiations yeah. of, of putting it in some other places. Got you. Got you. So let's go to our rapid fire round. So I got a series of five rapid fire questions, and hopefully we get rapid fire answers. You ready to rock? Let's do it. I bet. Uh, hold up. This is not the right question. <laughs> I was like, hold up, what? That would have been fun. Yeah, yeah, like, what? If you could add one habit and take away one habit, what would they be? <laughs> if I could add one habit, it would be uh, meditating. Uh, I keep failing at that. <laughs> yeah. If I could take away one habit, it would be... <laughs> this is a hard one to say because it obviously helps, but overworking. I, I'm a workaholic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's uh, kind of necessary in in some respects. Yeah, especially so. specifically, and I'm be real in this culture right in the time right now where let's be blunt. There's a lot of attention around black content, a lot of attention around. Uh, it, it, we'll see how long it stays, but this is the time you got to be hustling and go getting it, man. Because there's opportunities out here that they weren't there before that may not be here again for a while. So let's take you got to take advantage, man. So I understand that 110. percent Um. What's the best piece of advice that you have never received? Hmm. Best piece of advice you never received. Damn. I know it's supposed to be rapid fire, but that was a hard one. I don't yeah. know if I have an answer for that one. Uh, <laughs> best advice I never received is... Uh, there's a cheat code to it, right? The cheat code is you just giving, just giving your own advice. Well, oh, that's a good point. <laughs> but no, I'd say the best advice that I didn't receive is something I guess I, yeah, I just kind of stumbled on, which is the fact that most successful businesses are about to fail right before they become successful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's just great advice to understand because it doesn't allow you to get stuck in, you know, negative things that may happen within your business. So yeah, you know, understanding that successful people were about to fold before they, they hit that, that successful trajectory. Bruh, I, I heard that this year is like, I mean, we, we've been in a game, I'm 30, 15 years entrepreneurship, man. We done put stats on the, uh, everything the energy, people you thought the industry needed, putting stats on the board and, and everything, having stuff like all this. And we just finally broke through like this year, finally financially to be able to kind of make the moves that we needed to make. And it's like, yo, like there was so many, man, many years, like, man, bump it. I'm just, just say, golly, I got to get a regular job. I know because if I was at a corporate company, I'd be a rock star. I got, I know. But I'm like, bruh, is, and then right when you at the lowest and guys just be like, boom, like, what? <laughs> like, what? Like, for real? Like, what? And I've experienced that too. You're absolutely right. Every yep. single time. Not, it's like, man, but I mean, there's a whole other podcast as far as being ready for certain blessings that we ask for. But that's a whole yes. different, 
that's a, that's a long form piece of content that we just continue. We can never, you can never be, we can never preach on it enough. As far as the blessings that we want, are you are you really ready for it? And and what well, like that looks saying, like? Yeah, don't sit on your hands. Yeah, don't don't just do nothing and wait for the blessing. No, you need to be ready to take advantage of that blessing. You're absolutely right. What's your favorite? Who's your favorite comedian and why? <laughs> I'm a Dave Chappelle guy. There's there's so many I can obviously go to, but just the the ability. How do you produce that much content in a short period of time like that? Like this, I, I I'm still just. And the social consciousness behind what he does, you know, the ability to be able to laugh and still make a point um, and also to, to in this new PC society that we live in, to not be afraid to challenge the status quo, to challenge uh, even your own audience uh, and, and to make sure that comedians still have their their um, their license to tell a joke. I think it's just incredible. Um, but every era, you know, there's so many people like Richard Pryor, Red Fox, uh, Moms Mabley, you know, Whoopi Goldberg, we, you know, we're talking about EGOT over here. So, you know, I don't want to leave anybody out, but I'd say Dave Chappelle, my favorite comedian. Yeah. And I think society and the culture, we forget that Whoopi Goldberg is a comedian. I forgot, to be honest. I, I keep forgetting yeah. that Whoopi Goldberg is a legendary comedian. Like, we got to get we got to give her a fly. I, I don't think she gets enough enough just she do. Does not. Like yeah. it's it's, it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, like it's it's really they need it. They need it because like, bro, I'm th- I'm thinking about it even myself. I'm like, bro, like sister act and all the other stuff. Like, oh, like bro, like she she is on the level in my opinion of the Oprahs of the world. Like nope. neck and neck. Yeah. Like I mean, you take away the billion. Like <laughs> that's a hard takeaway. You take away <laughs> like <laughs> you take away, but it's like Whoopi and Whoopi got bread too. So it's like yeah. Whoopi Goldberg is a man. We don't give her enough roses. Kali, one of the most accomplished entertainers of all time. One of the most accomplished business people of all time. She is she is a, incredible. Wow, we and did. she's actually produced documentaries herself. She did one on Moms Mabley for HBO, which I don't think gets enough praise either. She she is an incredible creator. Man, golly, man, shout out to Whoopi Goldberg, man. I gotta get on the podcast one day. Um, <clears throat> last question of this. Oh my God, did I miss that? Okay, yeah, nah. Two questions. What, what what's your biggest fear? My biggest fear. Um, and this is outside of business, right? Or any, yeah. it can be anything, right? Anything. Yep. My biggest fear is losing the people around me. I'm not afraid of death myself, but I'm afraid of, of my, you know, the people that are close to me being gone. I think a lot of that comes from I lost a lot of people growing up. And so that's just, you know, I'm very fearless in my own life, um, but I'm afraid, you know, that I'm uh, not going to have those people around me to share, uh, you know, uh, uh, the greatness and even the sad moments of life, you know, as, as long as I would like to. Mm-hmm. And then the last question of this, and then we will wrap it up because I have our foundation question is, if you're the president of the United States, what's the first thing you would do? I was the president of the United States. First thing I would do. Uh, man, that's a tough one, man. I never thought I never thought about. Uh, I would. Uh, shit, there's so much things to fix now, too. Yeah. <laughs> well. Honestly, the first thing I would do, especially because given where I'm, what I'm currently working on, I, I would make sure that we we are setting up a new policing system. Mm. It's just, you know, for me, that's obviously that's very present of mind for me right now, given the project that I'm working on. But that's something that has to be done top down because the system itself was set up 
um, you know, as a as a systematic way of, of, of racism. And so, you know, I very much would would want to look at and not just look at, you know, not just do some, you know, study, but OK, let's go in and actually make changes um, to figure out how to situate that better. And that doesn't just mean uh, uh, changing that system that has ripple effects to other systems, you know, putting more money into social services for mental health and things like that. So, you know, I very much would want to look at how we are servicing communities, um, but kind of looking at policing as the way to, to look at how that ripples out into these other services. Mm, that's great, man. So that wraps up that, man. So as we close the show, man, I call everybody that comes on the show a culture change agent because that's what they're doing. They're shifting and changing the culture. Um, and this last question is in regards to that. If you could change one thing about society, most specifically our African-American culture, what would it be and why? We can change about culture. Well, <laughs> and this is, yeah, I, I don't know how easy it is to do any of these things, but, you know, I, I wish, and this is always the argument, that people wouldn't continue to see us as a monolith. We we are a very diverse community. Very, um, very, 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 very. <laughs> and we sometimes perpetuate it ourselves. And so that's why I say, you know, I, you know, I we need to kind of change that. So black, you know, outside our culture as well. But yeah, we're we're very uh, uh, diverse. And, you know, I grew up in a white suburb. So my experiences are much different than my cousin who grew up in the inner city of Baltimore. And um, you know, I think understanding that and not boxing us in and hopefully encouraging younger people to not feel boxed in and truly explore who they are, because that's what's going to make this world better, um, in, you know, in many different fashions is people feeling like they can be their true selves. And when, when we look at ourselves as monolith, monolithic, um, you know, we don't allow ourselves or when we per perpetuate that to our, our children. Um, we don't allow them to truly be who they are or, or, you know, it takes them many years to finally feel their full power. Mm, mm, mm. Man, that's a nutshell, man. So, yo, it's been a classic and phenomenal interview, man. Like, I've really, it's been, man, it's, it's, I'm just so blessed by God to be having, like, we've had three interviews today, man, and they've all been so unique in their own right. Like, it really has been. Earlier today, my, my homegirl, Jakaya, she's out there traveling fro. Check her out. She's in... Portugal, Senegal, somewhere like that, and sharing her journey. Then my, my boy Travis Weeks at Driven Society in New York made uh, a multicultural maven in yourself, man. You just uh, another multicultural, create content at a high level, and you have a different energy and different vibe to you as well, man. Like it's just a cornucopia of just um, of, of, of phenomenal blackness, man. Um, so I, I appreciate you, your time, man. And uh, uh, Minority Trouble as a Nation, we definitely appreciate your time, man. Um, so can you share with our audience where they can find you at, get more information, reach out if they want to contact, et cetera? Like, are you hiring hosts and all that thing stuff? Like, this is your time to really just share, share, share all that good stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and thank you again for having me and, and, you know, <laughs> knocking this out on a day where yeah, your, your slate was full. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely amongst great companies. So thank you for including me. Um, you can find, uh, our content, uh, our content from DCP entertainment. Um, we're on all social media platforms mm -hmm. at DCP official and, uh, same thing with our website, dcpofficial.com. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm, I'm not as fun to follow as, say, DCP is, but if you do <laughs> want to follow me, uh, you know, I put up pictures of, of me in my outdoor offices and, uh, you know, some of my, my throwbacks with celebrities back in my SiriusXM days. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Chris Colbert Report. And, um, 
you know, for say their name, that's the big thing that I'm really trying to push yeah. right now. You know, just, you know, beyond the business side of things and wanting to have a successful podcast, that's all great. But I truly, you know, and our team truly wants to make a difference with this podcast. And I truly want to raise um, uh, this money for these families and make a tangible difference. So I, I'd love for all your listeners to be able to help us with that. And so for that series, you can see it on our website. You'll see it a lot on our social media. But if you want to find it directly on any social media platform, just type in, say their name. Uh, there's no S on that. There's another show that has an S on it. Um, but yeah, say their name. And it's also on our website, dcpofficial.com slash say their name. Yep. And we'll make sure that this show goes out around the time of the debut to kind of uh, to kind of kick it off and help out with that. Um, and I'll make sure I'll, I'll I'll make sure I put that in the show notes at the beginning and the end to, to support it in some ways. And I'll make I'll, I'll make a commitment um, there as well to kind of kick it off. So, yeah, man, I'm, I'm really excited, man. We definitely got to uh, keep in contact, man. Like, um, yeah, man, you it's it's. I always respect people in the pioneers that men and been able to to execute the the rollout of a platform that touches a variety of different topics, et cetera, um, at a high level, man. And that's huge, man. So, um, yeah, bro, like there's a there's a lot to be learned from you. And if, and, no, I appreciate that. And if there's any way that um I can add value, hold on, let me hit this stuff. Oh, forgot to say. Oh, let's close it up. Uh, my note of trouble is in nature. Remember, remember, remember. One thing and one thing only. Two things. Make sure you leave a review. Five star only. If it's four star, send me an email and I will t- and I will quickly delete the email because I don't read that feedback. I'm playing, I'm playing, I'm playing. You can send that to me. Uh, and number two, number two, <laughs> make sure you're changing the freaking culture. Good night.